You know what I like about you, Dom? You're a genuine outlaw. But you're a family. The hell of a job, brother. When we get back to the base, beer's on me. He's about to go up against the only thing they can't handle. You. Did you ever think you'd betray your family the way you did today? Dominic Toretto just turned on us. Have you heard from people that I'm crazy? <laughs> you are not like other people. You're an exception. Something we didn't plan on has happened. engines for this is the fast and furious 8 episode of the electric shadows podcast with me your host rob daniel editor of electric-shadows.com as always i'm pleased to say i'm joined by my learned colleague mr rob wallace and as always it's an absolute pleasure to be here very good i realize i haven't been calling you my learned colleague for the past few i don't think it seems i seem to have lapsed off of that so um i can only offer my apologies i know i've been i've been quietly heartbroken hoping that you would you know pick up on that once again okay, then I'm going to give him three more weeks then I have to kill him <laughs> and you only had one more week to go so like really <laughs> you know it's that insurance check was going to be yours you, oh, well. you hadn't noticed I'd already put down the plastic yeah, the plastic sheeting I'm, I'm standing on plastic <laughs> <laughs> so yes um and Rob, of course, is the editor of ofallthefilmsites.com. Yes, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Yes. Sorry, is that www? Well, do we even need that anymore? Not really. We can find out. I'm sure we'll find out by Googling stuff over the course of this. Yes, indeed. You've got old school. Um, so, yes, that's all really good. And as I said at the top of the episode, in this we're going to be looking at Fast and Furious 8. And also, Rules Don't Apply, the new film by Mr. Warren Beatty. Which is, yes, we will talk more about that later, but let's just say that it is a contender for the Electric Shadows Mad as Our Souls film of 2017. And we're also going to talk about the new Star Wars trailer, so quite a bit to get through in this one. But I think... I'm sure we have... our usual concise and... Tangent-free <laughs> way. I think we've got enough gas in the tank to get through it. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I should have made a list. I should have, had, I should have come up with a list of car-related puns. We'll just see what we get from the way. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, it's, it's going to be a bumpy road, but uh, it's a buckle up. Uh, anyway, um, sorry. I saw this at the Limax on Leicester Square, uh, so the Sydney World Limax, and you know at the IMAX it has that countdown, so ten, nine, eight, and it all goes into the blue spinning discs and stuff yeah all the, all the transitions yeah. yeah this one actually had 10 9 start 8 your that engines ah. and it had lots of um, engines rubbing and themed. stuff it was themed it was a themed IMAX countdown and I thought oh that's quite good that's probably going to be more inventive than anything in this film but it wasn't I thought that actually Fast and Furious 8 had enough charm and they are pep. quite inventive essentially they're big, silly, high octane. It's one of those action franchises that knows exactly what it is. 
And because they've got more money than God. Because <laughs> they keep making more money than they, God. Yeah, they, uh, they, can, they can afford to put it on the screen. And, you know, this isn't, you know, I'm not, I don't think either of us are the archetype. Is that true? Actually, are you know both of us? Do we this this film perhaps has its audience has such a wide catchment area mm. that we are we are just part of its audience? Well, I would say. Well, let's let's get into what this eighth movie in the Fast and Furious franchise is about. So, it's about family. <laughs> There's so much family in the Fast and Furious film. It's all about family, and they're one big family. And they say family, a lot. family, to the point where it doesn't mean anything when you say word over and over again. Family, family, family. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I walked out of there and you know, sort of looked down at my phone and Mum was calling me and I went, I don't know what that. No, that's it. Just, I'm sorry, but uh, I think the whole concept of family's just dissolved over the course. Phones turned into weak course of the last two and a half hours. <laughs> yes, it's uh, but the leader or the dad of the family is Dominic Toretto. Dominic Toretto. Played by um, Vin I was, I, was think, I, was, I was trying to think of a pun, Mister. Oh right, um, a, a diesel van. Yeah, diesel van. Di- of course, um, Mister Alcoholic Petrol. Um. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Alcoholic Petrol. That's going to be his name for the rest of this. Whenever we talk about Vin Diesel, we are going to say Alcoholic, Alcoholic Petrol. Petrol. That's now his name forever. But uh, so yes. Anyway, Alcoholic Petrol. A.K.A. Dominic... Is it Toretto or... Toretto. Toretto. Um, Chorizo? (laughs) He is... At this point, he's like a secret agent or something, isn't it? I mean, anyway, yeah, let's get into what this film's about. He's the the leader of this gang, and you know what these films are about. They are in a gang, and they do... want to be in our gang. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please, alcoholic petrol. And they do... Heists that are now for the government and their kind of special agents. It's all become quite James Bond, and of course he is in love with um, Letty. Lottie. Is it Letty or Lottie? Letty. Why is getting it all wrong? So it's Letty, played by Michelle Rodriguez, uh, who was a few films ago was bad, wasn't she? Um, after you thought that she died, she had amnesia, and then she had amnesia, and it was that villainous amnesia because when we all have amnesia, we all go to the dark side and. Uh, that's what happens apparently and so anyway but she's now good and they are very very happy together and they are in Cuba at the beginning and because this film must have I don't know been sponsored in some way by the Cuban film tourism office and it does make Havana look great well apparently Havana is is a nice place and it is and you, and you should go to Cuba apparently it's, there is a rich culture I've and heard there's more urban degradation than they like to show and the food's not as good as you know. Oh, right, see. Was that even filmed in Cuba at the beginning or was it filmed on like, like a Hollywood Venice Beach or something? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, anyway, I'm sure it was filmed in Cuba. So, they're all very happy and everything's lovely and um, then Charlize Theron turns up and she plays a character called Rob... Cypher. Cypher. Which <laughs> is essentially... Um, them, yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of lampshade the fact that your character's motivations and really their plan is utterly obscure. It's like we're not going to explain anything about her, and therefore we're going to call her Cipher, and we're going to give her blonde dreadlocks. I feel that was a yeah, that was an odd. Well, it was it was blonde dreads in Cuba, wasn't it? But then I think that she had just 
straight hair for the rest of it, I seem to remember. But I feel, I well, feel like it was blonde dreads throughout. It could be blonde dreads throughout. I think she was such a cipher, I can barely remember how she looked in this film. Because it does... I mean, we'll get on to what's yeah, good and bad about this film, but one of the quite bad things is that it wastes Furiosa. Um, she seems to be having sort of like weird hair days in all her films recently, because she was had a close-cropped cut in... Mad Max Fury Road, didn't she? What's she done since Mad Max Fury Road? That's odd note. We'll have a look. But that was only a couple of years ago. Um, anyway, so Cypher turns up and says to Dominic, Dom, you have to do... You have to go rogue and you have to help me in my nefarious schemes to nick things. various weapons of mass destruction. To steal things. MacGuffins. To steal MacGuffins that can blow up the world for various reasons that are kind of just to do with taking over the world but not really explained and you have to betray your team the only thing your team can't deal with is you and he goes rogue and one of the reasons I, he goes rogue well we can't say it here because that's one of the very few things the trailer doesn't spoil um, but he goes rogue anyway and his team have to find out why he's gone rogue and they have to fight him and stop him from doing all the nefarious things and it's that's the plot <laughs> for two and a half hours and this, and you know Lots of very impressive set pieces and some big name stars, including a returning Jason Statham. Yes, and whom everybody's. Oh no, sorry. The Rock, you know, uh, playing Hobbs, um, clearly hasn't forgotten that he's a bad guy. However, Hobbs's problem with the Jason Statham character Deckard, I think, yeah. is based entirely on the previous film where Deckard basically beat the shit and forced him to jump out of a window because of an explosion. Everyone else seems strangely fine with him, given that he murdered their mate Han yep. from Tokyo Drift. I mean, he straight up just cold-bloodedly killed him. And everybody is just kind of like... Nobody's walking over and like, giving him a hug. But everybody's just kind of fine with him, apart from Dwayne Johnson. Well, I think that's a good point here to get into the, the Fast and Furious films. Just a quick run through the history of... Or a speed through past whatever the history of the Fast and Furious films so we have Fast and Furious 1 and in Fast and Furious 1 they are I mean, they are stealing they're DVD criminal. VHS combo machines aren't they yeah, or something like that they're, they're basically pretty, pretty just, low level they're street criminals yeah. they're basically just you know, jacking warehouses and stuff like that so they can get enough money to um, to illegally race in their pimped up supercars and it's Point Break with Cars is how it was described, and Paul Walker, the late lamented, um, is looks a lot like Keanu Reeves, and he's an undercover cop who infiltrates the gang, and Vin Diesel's the big yeah, granddaddy of this gang, and or the daddy of the family. And I remember that film, that first film, just being so boring because it really wanted to be a really important big crime epic, and it just didn't want to have any fun with its cars or anything and, and there was lots of CGI in there as well I seem to remember that it was like it all just seemed a bit weightless I tend to get that film confu- at least in terms of the action confused with Gone in 60 Seconds mm. which... another completely forgettable disposable racing film from the time which really says Nicolas Cage in it that had Ridiculous Cage in it and, um, and Vin Di- no, no not Vin Diesel Vin it, Jones is it Eccleston as well Who's Eccleston it? Eccleston is the baddie and that film is notable only for his baddie speech about the purity of making a table. Remember that? He's talking about when you make a table. 
Oh god, he's, he's surrounded by coffins or something like that. Yeah, I seem to remember it was in a warehouse, but it's only I only saw it once. But he says a table is a thing of form, but it's a thing of beauty, and the perfect table there is nothing better than in the world. It's like who wrote this as the villain's intro speech? The beauty of a table. <laughs> it's like um It's w- sponsored that by sounds IKEA. Wonderfully counterintuitive. <laughs> yes. I feel like I'd really get on board with that because it's like Well I might wasn't expecting it, this. I might see if it's a clip on YouTube and embed it in the uh, in the episode page for this podcast because it would be interesting to see that because I remember this is the weirdest speech ever for a paddy anyway um, I think it would yeah and he did it in his English accent and or his, you know, his um, broad northern accent and it's like this is just an odd film anyway with Fast and Furious isn't odd it's just boring but it wants to be heat it really wants to be heat and there's a scene I think they're near the beach or something and they're having burger and fries and it's Paul Walker and Vin Diesel as Dominic and Brian and Brian so the Paul Walker character asks if he can join the team and if he can be let into the team and do jobs with them and Dominic who's not sure about Brian and thinks there might be something a bit iffy about him kind of like yeah, looks at him and really tries to size him out and you can just see Vin really trying to act and, it's, and it wants to be the coffee table um, sorry the coffee shop scene from Heat and it really tries to be that scene. It's like this is bizarre. But Heat was Heat is quite cool. I mean, Heat's all shot with sort of you know very muted tones. And I, I, one thing I remember about Fast, it's all just orange. It's it's that burnished orange, and it's, it's like also, umber. It's like yeah, the, yeah. the whole way through. And it's also really, it's weird. The first Fast and Furious film is boring, but there's lots. But the camera doesn't stop, and there's all this you know, nubile flesh on display, both male and females you got the yeah, nubile girls and ripped men and it's like Lenny Reef and Star Wars Wet Dream or something but uh, and then you have these scenes where it tries to be heat and it tries to be a big important crime epic and it's like this is just the weirdest film ever and also not very good and the racing's not very good then you got Too Fast Too Furious which Vin wasn't in but it was Tyrese Gibson wasn't it yes uh, who is now obviously part of the who's now part of the crew and Paul Walker and Eva Mendes was in it as well and I've only seen that film once, but I remember that being a better film than the first one. And uh, yeah, it just seemed to have have more fun. And although apparently, it's, it's almost like Vin Diesel hasn't let Tyrese Gibson forget that fact because he's the, largely the comic relief now. Yeah, that's right. He's uh, completely the comic relief in these films. I mean, it's this film kind of gives him a bit of an action scene towards the end because it kind of feels sorry for him. And uh, yeah, it's really odd the way that. Um, yeah, he was in that film as a replacement for Vin Diesel, but now he is just, yeah, he's just a comic relief. And Ludacris was in that one as well, so that was the film that introduced Ludacris to the franchise too. I've heard that in the original film there is actually features a song by Ludacris right. that makes it weird that Ludacris is being cast in these films because it's kind of world-breaking... Oh, right. When you think like the, I, I don't like this oh, I, 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 I suppose hose yeah. and butterflies, or I think it's, it's something that's me vaguely remembering it. Right. Which means that the fact that Ludacris is a like who sung that song in the original film, Rob? If Ludacris exists, yeah, yeah, yeah. both as a, <laughs> yeah as a, as Ludacris and as Tej, mind blown. Well, our mind will be blown more and more as we go through these films because next up is. Uh, well, this one though, um, part two was directed by John Singleton, and of course, who was Boys in the Hood and was a, a big important director for a very brief 
moment and then he wasn't and then he was doing this film and I thought this film actually had like you know energy to it and was a more enjoyable film than well, the first one it's interesting because F. Gary Gray's most recent film before um, Fast 8 was um, Straight Outta Compton yes that's right in yeah. terms of that yeah, keeping in in that same world of um, urban violence and gangster rap, and yeah, 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 definitely. It's, um, well, the then we go to number three, Tokyo Drift. So Tokyo Drift was the one where Paul Walker didn't come back for this one. No one wanted to come back for this one. So, and but I think at this point also as well, they thought actually this is this is something that we can franchise and we can tour this as a franchise. We don't need to have it tied down to movie star egos. We can make this. Yeah, the film itself, the name can be the star. It's the vehicle. Yeah, it's the vehicle. The vehicle is itself. Oh, that's so good. And so they go to Japan and they do drifting, which is when you basically skid down mountains in your in your cars. And um, I, again, I, I've only seen these films once. Um, I saw that and thought that was really silly and not as good as the second one. And yeah, yeah. That was, you know, whatever. I don't think there's going to be a fourth one of these because I don't see how you can, I don't know, go to London. That would be weird to have a Fast and Furious film set in London. Ha ah. um, But anyway, and then Vin Diesel crops up at the end of it, doesn't he? And it's like, oh, that was interesting. Because that was kind of before you know, Marvel was doing that sort of stuff. So I was like, well, that's actually quite cool that you had that cameo there. And of course, Vin, one of my favourite stories of movie star folly. I'm sorry? Sorry. Do you mean? Alcoholic? Sorry, I mean alcoholic petrol. <laughs> so alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> um, boozy, alcohol- is boozy, is boozy better? Boozy petrol. No, is alcoholic petrol. Alcoholic petrol has a nice ring to it. Al to his mates. Alcoholic petrol had a one point three franchises to choose from, and it was between this red Riddick and Triple X. Yes, that's right. Um, and he chose. Riddick and he chose to do the Chronicles of Riddick or the Ridicules of Chronic the one of the worst films ever made um, and fucked his career <laughs> but then it's so weird because he then came back and said alright I'll do the cameo for three which then gave his career a fuel injection which meant that he could then have another go at his other franchise that he that he passed up on well, um, yeah, Riddick had another go with Riddick and then he had triple X Three or whatever it was well, called. Well, that was this year. Yes, right, yeah. Three, the return of Xander Cage, because everybody had been really. I'd been anxious. I'd been wondering what Xander Cage had been up to since. Well, he'd been dead because they killed him off in a um, That's right. in a bonus feature on the DVD that literally has the, the neck tattoo off the back of his head flutter down. Yep, that's right. And like you know, Ice Cube then came into it, and I thought that Triple X Two, State of the Nation, whatever it was called, or State of the Union. Um, was a guilty pleasure because that film was just absolutely bonkers and chubby ice cube kind of jumping around and hanging off bullet trains and stuff just made me really I really want a film where he plays triplets triplets (laughs) there's a very specific reason ice cubed ice cubed oh I see (laughs) so triple x triplets ice cubed that works for the next film and I thought the Triple X Return of Xander Cage actually was it started off complete and utter shit and then actually became quite charming so Fast and Furious number four the gang's all back because their careers didn't really work out the way they wanted to and so in Fast and Furious you've got everyone back really haven't you so there's um, Paul Walker and 
Vin Diesel, alcoholic petrol, sorry, and I'm going to stick with it. And Michelle Rodriguez um, and ah oh, Jordana Brewster, who was uh, who was a love interest for Brian, for Brian, and isn't she also Dom's sister in the film as well? Yes, in the original film. In the original film, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And that was a film, I don't know if you remember, it had a really good trailer because it was just an exit. It was the opening high scene, basically, released as the trailer. And it's like, well, actually, that looked really good. That was, I thought that looked pretty good, that one. And then I came to watch it and it's like, oh, no, this is all CGI in this one. This is absolutely just nonsense, this film. Um, I mean, she's obviously um, not back. Um, Jordana Brewster's obviously not back in the new one and probably won't be... No, I think she's out. Now that, because, because she's obviously tied up with Paul Walker's character. That's right. It's, it's, I mean, it's lucky that she's independently wealthy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, come on. Come on, make the leap. Jordana Brewster. Oh, yes, she's got Brewster's millions. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> I'm going to take this as an opportunity to cough and clear my throat. <clears throat> yes, okay, right, cool. So Fast and Furious, I mean, yeah, jump in on any of these with if, if you disagree with any of them. <laughs> Did you see Fast and Furious? I've seen. I think I've seen all of them at some point. They. Well, I mean, Fast and Furious, Fast and Furious was, about. I mean, it was that arguably the start of the franchise now as we know it? It is. It was. It actually, it it really was. I think you can. That's a really good point. You can kind of see, the Fast and Furious one, two, three is is a franchise that it keeps getting to the next petrol station before it runs out of petrol entirely. So it can just keep chugging on to the next town and then with Fast and Furious they installed NOS injectors NARS that's right yeah, yeah. they put NARS into the engine or whatever they do with it <laughs> and um, yeah is it, isn't that the right, the right time to say I, I can't drive no can I yeah it's like, so you've got two people here without a driving licence um, talking about this car film but Fast and Furious is right because it was because the gang was back together it became much more of a um, well this one they're having to bust a heroin importer aren't they by infiltrating his operation so you've got them becoming so Brian and Dominic are kind of becoming special agents in this one um, so Dom's still on the wrong side of the law but I think that Brian is kind of covering for him or something and like you're protecting him and he's helping him bring down this heroin smuggler because of it and of course in this one as well you also get the death of a main character Michelle Rodriguez so she dies in this one spoiler alert <laughs> um, how does she die again? I think she just gets I think she falls out of a car or gets run over it's during a chase I think she just falls out and gets run over but it would be good to go back and see if they've had to wreck on it because I, I remember it being pretty much this thing that she was out of it but of course we then have the next film Fast and Furious 5 or Fast 5 and I remember going to see this at a uh, you know, Universal preview screening and having just thinking, oh, why am I even here? I think I'm here because they always put on a quite nice spread before the <laughs> before the film. And it's a Monday night and it's been the week, so therefore, yeah, that's fine, I'll go and see Fast Five. Bloody hell, bloody Fast and Furious. I'm still watching these. Oh my God. <laughs> it was one of the finest films ever made. Fast Five. Have you seen Fast Five yet? I have. I... <laughs> God, is that a really enjoyable action movie. It continues... Yeah, the bigger is better, and let's just put lots of yeah, and they're special agents, and we're going to, and it's and it's one of those films where it says, okay, this is going to be a film where we're doing bigger is better. We're going to keep the kind of special agent stuff in there. Um, we're going to make it a heist film, so there's going to be a bit where they have to get the gang together and do lots of rehearsals of the heist. And the stroke of genius, we're going to put Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, in it, and that was the stroke of genius for this entire thing was. Uh, 
that we now have The Rock in there because everyone loves The Rock. I mean, I think a, a lot of the reason why these films appeal to lots of people is because you put The Rock in it. Who doesn't like The Rock? It's great. I mean, yeah. <laughs> again, is there anything The Rock can't do? I don't think we've definitively proven. I mean, he's, he, you know, he, uh, he can he can clearly he can do comedy. He can do action. Based in Moana, he can croon. Yep, he can. He, he can actually act as well. I mean, his uh, own pen and gain, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, did yeah, um, but also stay cool. The get um, get shorty sequel wasn't very good, but he was good in it. Um, Southland Tales, which was also cack, but he was good in it. So yeah, I would say that. And Fast Five, interestingly, is based on a script that was called The Brazilian Job, and will take place in Rio. And the Brazilian job, yeah, and the Brazilian job does sound like something that if you Google it at work, you end up in HR by the end of the day. But um, is it like back sack and crack? Yeah. So well, it's kind I mean, of it's what it's, yeah, it's what it, the, the waxing Brazilian, um, a, Brazilian, yeah, it's called a Brazilian, yeah. I'm sure if you went in and asked for a Brazilian job, they'd know what you meant. I think yeah, because I think that's the thing is that the word job is kind of like the word load. It's been utterly corrupted by internet porn culture. You can't say job anymore without it having some kind of sexual element to it. So what? New <coughs> new British crime case. The Hatton Garden job. The Hatton Garden job is not about um, a big diamond uh, heist, but something quite different. Um, old fusty sex. Anyway. <laughs> we are still talking about fast movies yeah. I don't know. Any, I don't know. So Fast and Furious 5. So based on a script called The Brazilian Job, which was the unmade sequel to Mark Wahlberg's The Italian Job remake. The Italian Job remake was uh, was directed by F. Gary Gray, who has directed Fast and Furious 8. So it's all beginning to tie together. We're almost there, folks. Fast and Furious 6, that's one set in London with Rupert Evans. Yes. Um, no, not Rupert Evans. Who was it? Um... Luke Evans. Luke Evans, thank you. Um, Who has, you know, we'll save that for a minute. Let's well, actually, well, but the thing that we've got there was that uh, at the end of um, Fast Five, as a as a post credit scene, <gasps> there's a gang that's tearing up Europe, and there's this really lethal female operative, and Letty, the Michelle Rodriguez character, is that operative. She's alive and she's gone rogue. Ooh, so Fast and Furious 6, we go to London, and Luke Evans is the baddie in that, and he plays, what's his name in that? I can't remember now. Um, he, he's called Deckard, because he's, he's the brother of Jason Statham, isn't he? But I can't remember his first name. Owen? Owen? Could be that, because the whole Welsh connection. But I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's playing, he's definitely playing London in it. In this. Yes, indeed. Is uh, Yes, he he bothers to that. Sure. Sure. Sure, sure, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, yeah. Sure, no, well, that's not his surname, is it? <coughs> Who knows? They just wreck on all these. So anyway, so this is the one that's uh, yeah set in London. It's the sequel after Fast Five, and I was really looking forward to it. I thought actually it wasn't as much fun as it should have been, and was a bit dull. It kind of wasted Gina Carano, who's the um, ultimate fighting champion. I think she is. She's like a mixed martial arts um, champion. She's in Haywire she's the lead in Haywire and she's really good and she um, I thought was a bit wasted in this film but uh, it's also the film that has that ends with the um, race down the runway on, with that plane about to take off and someone worked out that that runway is 25 miles long because of the time that they're spending speeding down there 
rubbish. Yeah, Michelle Rodriguez turned out that she got amnesia. She's all right. Um, and then Fast and Furious 7, which is the tragic one, isn't it? Because Paul Walker died when they were filming it in a car crash. And it couldn't have been more tragically ironic. Um, so, yeah, so that's the, that's the one where they had to basically do some huge rewrites on the story to, well, and, uh, to write him out. And, oh, and CGI. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, they, they got his brother in. Brothers? They Plural. got... Yeah, they... they used every trick in the book to finish the film um, they yeah, got scenes that hadn't that had been shot for other, other purposes and they got outtakes and they put it all together to uh, complete the performance and they also got his brothers in yeah. and there's a, at the end of the film there's a scene when he's having a fight in uh, I don't know, an abandoned warehouse like a whole, um, hideout or something and there's lots of shots there that are kind of from behind or like an, an oblique angle that's kind of behind him just looking at him kind of in like an oblique profile and you can kind of see it kind of looks like him but you think well that's his brother isn't it um, it's, actually I thought it was quite well done but the thing about this about Fast 7 that I really liked was that they didn't kill him off and I thought it was and actually drive off into the sunset they do drive off into the sunset and I actually choked up at that thing <laughs> no, I, 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 was seeing, I was seeing it at the IMAX uh, preview screening and I got IT up a bit it does provide, you know, in Fast 8, the part where they're like, we need to get Brian involved. And they're like, we can't get Brian involved. We said we wouldn't. Oh, that we said we wouldn't. That's why we can't get Brian involved, right? Yeah, there is this... That, I mean, that is one of those things where it's like, that's probably the best way you could do that, but that doesn't work, does it? But I thought it worked, because I thought they're going to do it so that he dies halfway through and it becomes a revenge plot or something like that. And I'm really... I thought it was really, really smart of them. He drove off to the sunset. You need never mention him again. You need never mention him again. Or if you mention him, you can only mention him. He's he's never on the phone. He's never doing any of this. It was, um, but I thought it it seemed pretty seamless in terms of how they presented it. Yeah, there wasn't a scene where like you know Vin Diesel on the phone going, "Hey guys, it's Brian. <laughs> hey Brian, <laughs> you coming back? You're not. You decided to drive off into the sunset. Was it good?" Great. Bye. You're living on a farm. Living on a farm, and we will never see you again. Um, but no, I thought because they actually talk to each other, don't they? As well, there's a bit when when he drives off, and then alcoholic petrol <laughs> comes after him and says, "You don't think I'd let you go without saying goodbye?" And they have a conversation. I thought, well, this is actually really quite well done because, of course, this is this was only this only exists like this because because he died and. It is a really, really nice way to yeah, have a send-off. Not just this character, of course, but to this actor, who by all accounts was a, yeah, a lovely man. So, in that film as well, we have Jason Statham. And also, at the end of Fast 6, of course, is when Han dies. Because this is when we get into the weird time travel element of this. Yeah, because Oddly screwy seven franchise. takes place... Before 3. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, no, sorry, 6 takes place before 3 because at the end of 3 Han dies in a big smash up but he was such a popular character that they brought him back for 5 when they were bringing all the gang together and actually it's yeah, 5 is also quite smart in terms of just bringing in a rainbow cast so you have a really good cast that's yeah, really really diverse and um, yeah so Gal Gadot yeah, Wonder Woman herself is uh, is one of the gang isn't she and um, Sung Kang who um, I think is Korean um, is Han and well he's actually born in Georgia USA so that was a bit but that, that I'm pretty sure that's a Korean name um, oh, yeah, of Korean extraction yes indeed anyway so he dies at the end of three 
but then he's back for five because he was so popular. But then they do this really, I thought, quite a bold and doesn't really make sense, but still, wow, okay, you can do this now, where they then have Jason Statham kill him at the end of Fast Six. In is it like a mid? It's like a, a mid end end credits yeah. or something, isn't it? It's kind of it comes back for this death of a major character halfway through the credits. And then Jason Statham gets out, and it's like, well, you had the rock, and now you've got the Stath. Ah! <laughs> it's so brilliant. And, and setting up the conflict between them, so that you're between a rock and a hard Stath. Oh! Oh, I'm going to set you around like that. <laughs> That's so good, a rock and a hard Stath. <laughs> oh. You know when you've been touched by genius? <laughs> touched by genius, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> anyway, so into Fast and Furious Seven, the one without Han because um, he's dead. Because he's dead. Because the Stath, who plays Deckard, um, it is Deckard, isn't it? Yeah, it's Decker, Deckard, Deckard. So it is. It is Blade Runner, then, basically. Um, you replicant. <laughs> I believe is what he said at one point. Um, and, uh, yes. Um, so, he, yeah, he's the big bad in that. And, uh, of course, at the end, Paul Walker dies off into the sunset and it's all it's all lovely. And it is Deckard, you're right. So, they have Fast 8. And Fast 8, as you all know from the trailers, is, um, yeah, Dom goes rogue for some reason. Charlize Theron is in on it and seems to be manipulating him. The Stath is back and The Rock doesn't like it and there seems to be it seems to be a prison film at one point and there's it's a definitely of, a touch of like escape plan in there, isn't there? There is there, yeah, there, yes, it did remind me of Escape Plan, a film that should have been much better than it was, and I actually I thought that the prison scene in this film was much better than it was. It's very hyper it's them sort of it's the the prison is the playground, them sort of bouncing off walls and skidding around mm. and taking off anybody taking out anybody who crosses their path. I thought that Fast 8, which clocks in at a weighty two and a half hours, I think. Um, is it two and a half hours? It's something like uh, two hours. It was more no, like two hours, 16 minutes, okay. But it so doesn't still, feel still long. long, does it? It doesn't feel long. I thought we were on the ice. Again, it's all in the trailer. Uh, but it, it didn't spoil as much of it as I thought it would do. Because the trailer for Fast 6 really does spoil the end of the film. I thought this film really sped along, to, uh, <laughs> if you'll pardon the pun. And... It just these just know what they are now. These are just lean, efficient. You get good, good gas mileage. It's kind of um, these are just lean, efficient action films that really have just an interesting. I just wonder if the writers' room for these films are just yeah saying right. Okay, so we moved him over there last time and her over there this time. So who are we going to move this time to completely go against their character? And then the whole time they're just going set piece. Set piece, yeah. Set piece. Set piece. <laughs> Set piece. Okay, so we need... It's like the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking. Every ten minutes there should be uh, violence or sex. And in this it's like, every 15 minutes you should have at least some bit of either fisticuffs or fast cars or something. And we have both in this film, and... Yeah, good enough fun. Um, a good time. With there film. are good some sequences that are ama- that are pretty, almost pretty astonishing. Yeah, uh, you know the one set on Manhattan where uh, all those, you know, the cars fall. Uh, it's not not really a spoiler. It's in, it's the, in trailer. the trailer. Yeah, fall under the control of Cipher, who essentially hacks them, and they have literally thousands of cars piling around corners and you know smashing through you know, third story windows you know, out of car parks. It and rains just, cars. Uh, yeah, that's it's right. Just, it's automotive. <laughs> 
mayhem. Orgy. <laughs> it's, yeah. like a, it's like David Cronenberg's crash, isn't it? There's such an orgiastic thrill of destruction to the to these cars. It's um and that's and the thing about this is that these films now, to all intents and purposes, it was they were James Bond for a while, but now they're just Marvel superhero films. I mean, these these are superhero yeah, no, I, films. I, I totally agree. With, I totally agree with that, and I think because they've realised that superhero films allow for spectacle on a scale that almost no, almost no, because they are they are they are sort of the equivalent of the they're the modern day gods, you know, mm. modern day Greek gods or Norse gods in the case of Thor, and it allows for you know a certain degree of character and vulnerability. Uh, which allows for you know destruction on a scale that you know chances are you know James Bond is a man with a gun taking on you know armed henchmen and eventually there'll be a nuclear missile or whatever. But these, it's just like you can do anything and go anywhere and do you know and and nothing will be too outlandish. And also, The Rock and Alcoholic Petrol pick people up in this film. They don't just pick them up by the scruff of their neck. They literally lift them and. In them against the wall. There's the bit when the rock hops. Little no, oh, yeah, it takes offence to little nobody played by Scott Eastwood. Scott Eastwood, little nobody. Charisma vacuum, Scott Eastwood. Little <laughs> nobody who, you know, he's the he's the assistant. He's the sort of slightly officious, a greenhorn assistant of Kurt Russell's Mister Nobody, who's kind of a, a covert secret element of the CIA, or literally, or something like and that. And at one point, they call they call little nobody Scott Eastwood nothing. Yes, which is such a better name. Nothing, it is, isn't it? Nobody, nobody and nothing. nothing. Yeah, as opposed to little nobody, which just yeah. Because also, that's not you know not being entirely fair. Because you know, to either him or Kurt Russell. Because yeah, nothing is actually better. Yeah, Hobbs as played by The Rock picks up little nobody as played Basically by Scott bench presses him and bench presses him against the wall and above his head, and it's like okay, so we're just this now, aren't we? Really, but we kind of got into this really with. Fast Five, when Dom and Brian go off that cliff into the into the river, and it's like, how are they going to get out of that? Because they're falling about 150 feet. How are they going to get out of that before they hit the water? I oh, know they just hit the water and, and and they don't die. So these are the rules of physics in these films. And okay, that's fine. That's what we're going to do in these films. So and also, Scott Eastwood's a big guy. He's a big guy. He yeah. takes after his dad. He does. That's right. Um, but. And the prison breakout as well. I mean, they are literally flying around at that. They are jumping and leaping, and there is an element of Superman before he learned how to fly in terms of how both Hobbs and Deckard are fighting their way out of, of prison in that scene. And But I thought, well, this is all just yeah, make-believe and silly anyway. And I thought that scene was actually quite well done in terms of the choreography and isn't there there's a line that's something like you know where Hobbs comes across somebody he knows who wants to stick a shiv in him and it's like I've waited a long time to do this and then he just turns the guy's knife and basically makes him stab himself and goes like keep waiting bitch that's right and then he just keeps on going that's right keep waiting bitch oh the rock (laughs) and it's just like and it'll just keep like and then there's another one there's another one there's boom 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 okay short respite boom 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 (laughs) boom and yes that's kind of what you want from these films. And it's what you get. But the thing that... You're right, the MacGuffin is just the MacGuffin and Dom's having to do all these different things. The car chase in Manhattan with all the right control cars is quite spectacular. There's a really great shot where they all just come speeding around a corner and like slamming into the it shops made, it made and buildings. It made me think of uh, World War Z. Yes, it, it, is, it is like that. It is like how the zombies all chase and pile over each other to get at people. That's how the cars are in this film. That's exactly it, and that's I mean that is spectacular. There is an amazing 
sense of spectacle to that scene and there's lots of things about this film that I thought yeah this is really good the one thing that I I had an issue with was and it kind of happens in Triple X3 as well is that you have a character who is who is a bad guy and does things from which you can't come back like Magneto <laughs> but he they do come back and as you said the Stath Deckard is kind of rehabilitated in this movie um, we're not going to spoil everything but it's um, he isn't the villain of the last film he's kind of the anti-hero of this film and it's like okay so you I know it's because he's a he's a popular actor and a popular character but this series has a moral flexibility to how it approaches or, or, villains or an amnesia and am- yes it does have an amnesia and but no, actually, no, I think it's a moral flexibility because no one has amnesia in these. Everyone remembers what this character did, but no one seems to but mention because, it. But because in this film, yeah, the mission is the most important thing, therefore they think, well, we're not going to mention it anymore. And it's like, I'm sorry, but there's a moral flexibility that is at play here that is kind of like what hitmen have and they can just immediately... Or gangsters have, where you just like someone until you kill them and then or you... Think well, that's fine. He's he did kill my friend, but he's fine because he's one of us, isn't he? And all this kind of stuff. And it's like mm, I don't know, I don't know, because he did kill Han, and Han is like, well, we liked Han, we liked Han, and I don't think there is an Asian actor in this in the gang anymore, is there? He, is he, someone he, he was Han Solo. No, I'm he sorry. was Han Solo. Yes, that's right. <laughs> no, he was Han Solo. That's the thing. There was a, there was one Asian. Very good. I mean, that was you are on fire tonight. <laughs> you are firing on all cylinders tonight. <laughs> you are loaded with nars. <laughs> <laughs> but, and the thing that this film also does that I think is quite not very good um, uh, is it wastes Charlize Theron who actually has had it just doesn't really I mean in all fairness she's good in it she's fine she well, but she's, she's, good, she's just, a very very talented just icy she was so great as Mad Max Fury Fury Rhodes Furiosa and you're putting her in a Fast and Furious film when she doesn't get in a car at any point. It's like, come on, are you? I don't know why you wouldn't do that. Well, I think she. I mean, maybe she just wanted to be involved in a way that a certain other very talented lady wanted to be involved. We won't spoil her. Yeah, indeed. But there's maybe. But I also it did kind of remind me of the all the names going out of my head tonight. Who's the woman in Triple X: The Return of Zondercade? Not Kate Blanchett, um, Tony Collette, yes. who does the exact same thing that Charlize Theron does in this film. Oh, but she, stands around but, and just gives orders and is. But just she mean. does that in a film I saw recently called Unlocked, which is directed by Michael Apted, star that stars Numi Rapace. Oh yes, isn't Tony Collette is doing that on far less uh, pres- prestigious pre- uh, projects <laughs> than Triple X Three? Right. Okay. Like she's willing to do that for a paycheck. She'll do that. All right. Okay. Because Charlize Theron did what well, she was the voice of Kubo. Um, she was the voice of Munke in Kubo and the Two Strings, which is Toy Blonde coming out this year. Which I think is going to be her action film, isn't it? I mean, it's this was like a warm up for Atomic Blonde. But can Atomic Blonde? I don't know. I mean, it looks like Salt um, meets John Wick. Yeah, or because it's by Stahelski, isn't it? It's no, by... yeah, my friend Elliot put it perfectly um, when he said the trailer. Pinch, yeah. Taken with a pinch of salt, <laughs> and that is Atomic Blonde. 
but we'll always have Mad Max Fury Road, which was fucking amazing. Um, I'd say I'm looking forward to Atomic Blonde. I saw I saw a, um, the, one of the fight sequences from it. Oh yeah, yeah, so that's right, yeah. And it's great. It, it, it is not a single take. It, it has the feel of a single take. Yeah, yeah, and but... yeah, people just getting severely beaten and being exhausted and bloodied and just getting up until they literally are made to stay down. The thing about that is, I think, yeah, John Wick and John Wick Two are good fun, but they're not as good as they should be. But I think it's, uh, it's. I mean, it's got a touch of like Man from Uncle because of the because of the of the era, mm-hmm. but. The fights are far more grueling than in John Wick because people do just, and these are pretty much ordinary flunkies, keep on just getting up. Yeah. Well, this is this is going to be the point where I name and shame you after all the good work you've done so far. Because um, you've not seen Haywire yet, have you? And I started watching it. Oh, did you? All oh, right. Ooh. I um, I got I, I made a, a chunk of the way through, and I I. Don't quite recall. I think I was stopped because I had to go to bed. Right, okay. it's a, a pretty good reason. But uh, but the opening fight in Haywire in that diner, diner is yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Just the way that other people try to stop it and get involved, and just what they're doing, I thought was really well done. Um, yes. Anyway, and that's with Channing Tatum, who you kind of think would be in a Fast and Furious film at some point. But anyway, maybe Fast and Furious. Well, they're going to do nine and ten, aren't they? So uh, and then they're going to do a reboot, I'd imagine. Fast and Furious Juniors. Fast and Furious Babies. <laughs> so, yeah, so then. Laugh, but you'd, you'd watch Fast and Furious Babies. I'd, I'd, I'd watch Fast and Furious Babies. Um, it would be if you're strapping babies into cars and then firing them at <laughs> each other. I'd watch that just out of weird, grim fascination. <laughs> wow. So, I'm trying to. I actually, I we did have quite a bit to say about this film, I thought, but is there anything else to say about Fast and Furious 8? Um, other than I'm not I don't think they know where they're going to take it next because there's no post credit scene in this film and they said they, that they'll do 9 and 10 but they're not but we don't well know what it's going to be. there is a certain thing that's left open ended there is a certain thing that's left open ended certain avenues it does but it's like well are they avenues worth exploring I don't know we'll see I think it would just be interesting to see well they're considering a spin off that apparently Mm. apparently uh, Alcoholic Petrol is doing everything in his power to prevent where did you read that? various sources right okay yeah yeah that the that Hobbs so The Rock and Jason Statham's character Deckard are going to have their own spin-off I mean The Rock and The State (laughs) would be amazing in a film together and you would have um in a real, rock and a hard state would yeah, be the tagline. In all to fairness, the, yeah, the rock, the rock and a hard state does also sound a bit like a gay porn. Yeah, but uh, the rock and a hard state—that's fine. I mean, it's like it's almost as good as the tagline for Central Intelligence. The Rock. Um, all you need is a uh, is a is to a, save the world. Is a little heart and a big Johnson. Yes, to save the world, all you need is a little heart and a big Johnson. <laughs> That's better than the film itself, although I thought the film had its charms. So yes, so there could be a there, there is going to be a spin-off at some point. I think I know that Alcoholic Petrol is um, a producer on these films, so therefore I imagine he has a certain amount of creative control over it. Anyway. Which is more than we can say for. <laughs> oh, this is all getting cut, isn't it? Oh well. Um, 
Yes, but he must be absolutely minted because he's a producer and actor on these films. And this film did $531 million in four days around the world. I mean, Jesus. And also, only $98 million in the States. So in the States, it's been underwhelming. I think they've they've been quite disappointed with the fact that it didn't crack $100 million. But it's still done over half a billion in, in four days. This This is... This is a juggernaut, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the Fast and Furious franchise is perhaps, perhaps at least the last couple of instalments, been the most bankable franchise maybe on the planet. Other than the Marvel films, I'd say that. The yeah, Marvel I mean, films... I mean, in terms of the, like, the most, in terms of it's just one thing. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah, yeah. If you're not talking about any of the spin-offs or anything, yes, then yeah, indeed, definitely. Um, yeah, so Universal has this and the and the Jurassic films. So don't forget about the Mummy. And the mummy, well, yeah, and the mummy with Tom Cruise coming out this year. That well, we'll see it, won't we? So therefore, I mean, it's but yeah, I think you're right there. But it's weird, isn't it? The Fast and Furious, this film that came out and was just a silly, illegal strip racing film or whatever they call it, um, is drag now, racing. Well, it was yeah, but is it drag racing? Was that because that was that was a thing before? And I wondered if there, if there was a new name for it because it was cool and new. Anyway, yeah, drag racing film. Um, if that that is yeah, this could now be the biggest franchise or the most dependable franchise. I suppose other than Star Wars as well. But anyway, the fact that this is on par with Star Wars is saying is a surprise, I think. But yeah, so we'll see what happens next. We'll see what are the combinations of movements of characters can you have here. And I think they've kind of got themselves into a bit of a M Night Shyamalan style twist where they have to have a big reveal in in all their films, and there wasn't really that in this film. So is it going to be that Han is not dead and that he's going to come back full of vengeance and he's going to be really angry that the deck is now part of the team and he'll go rogue and he'll be gunning for all of them because they've betrayed him and is he's been completely fucked up by the crash and he's now the part of his brain that feels empathy and compassion has been crushed and he could, he's just fueled by vengeance. Um, if that's directed by Park Chanuk, that could be the best film ever made. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah. Fast and Furious 8 worth a go yes the ending we're not going to spoil anything about the end but it actually I thought was I mean, good don't well, don't, don't race to the cinemas <clears throat> but do see it do catch yes. it yes yeah I can't think of any of else. <laughs> it's worth parking up for something like that there is actually there is the guy the um, Charlize Theron's character has a oh, Park Chanuk Park Chanuk if you park yes <laughs> brilliant I suppose we could talk also about the guy from Game of Thrones who's in it as well. What's his name? Is it Christoph someone? He's basically uh, the red... Christopher... Um, Christopher Hivju. Hivju, who was born in Norway. What's the name of his character? In this, I think it is the redhead or something like that. Um, Rhodes. 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 Oh, that's a nice pun, isn't it? Rhodes. There we go. Um, yes, he is Tormund Giantsbane from Game of Thrones he's the the quite fearsome looking wildling with red hair he's a wildling isn't he yes yeah anyway he's Charlize Theron's henchman in this and him and alcoholic petrol get lots of opportunities to glare at each other he's also in Force Majeure and Force Majeure is a great film so you should all see that so that's that so that film Fast and Furious was both fast and furious but you know what it wasn't Batshit insane. It wasn't batshit insane. 
Do I, is batshit insane? Is it rules don't apply? It might be rules don't apply. The Howard Hughes kind of biopic directed by Warren Beatty. What's the, the story of Rules Don't Apply? <laughs> Try and tell that. Rules Don't Apply is the story of a charming ingenue, charming, devoutly Christian ingenue, who arrives in Hollywood in 1958 looking to make it as a movie star as part of Howard Hughes's RKO, RKO's? Yeah. RKO's sort of extended stable of beautiful young women. Uh, during her, 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 her time there, she, uh, she meets a chauffeur played by Alden Ehrenreich, uh, with whom she has an immediate chemistry, but Hughes's pl- strict rules about you know non non fraternisation between the beauties and the staff prevents that them from taking this relationship any further, especially when Hughes himself, played by Warren Beatty, Warren, who appears on the scene as a potential paramour, paramour uh, for what's her name Marla, isn't it? Marla, yes, yeah, so the, Lily, uh, Lily Collins is. M- is it Marla Mabry? Marla Mabry, indeed. The girl with the two M's. Yes. So, like a superhero. And, yes. And actually, um, and it's Frank Forbes as well, isn't it? So there's lots of alliterative names in this. That's the ordinary white character. It's Frank Forbes and Howard Hughes. So oh, that's another little interesting thing that he's decided to go with as well. This is a mad movie. Much much madder than I thought it would be. I thought I was, I was actually um, expecting something quite dry and dusty, and you can't accuse it of being that. I um, I mean, this this is the guy who who gave us Reds, and you know, has Bullworth <laughs> and Bullworth, and hasn't made a film in fifteen years, yep. and has wanted to make a Howard Hughes film for years. And initially, upon hearing that he's cast Lily Lily Collins and Alden Enright as this sort of star-crossed lovers at the centre of it almost feels like he's relegated himself like he doesn't have the confidence anymore Yeah. like he's gone okay we need these two handsome young people to focus on and I'll just sort of mill around in the background um, <clears throat> but it is the film is you could dismiss it very easily as being a vanity project I think we, we both talked about earlier a vanity project by well, at least one of the people or one of the subjects of the song You're So Vain by Carly Simon by Carly Simon um, and as she said he probably uh, he he probably thinks it's all about him. Yeah, which <laughs> you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you <laughs> exclusively. Exactly, um, and it is just weird because it is this very sort of sparky, you know, punchy Hollywood. Lots of sort of banter and gags. I mean, there's a scene where Howard Hughes is laid up in a hospital bed with like, and there's like you know the with him controlling the hospital bed. That's right. And there's like an enema bag. And there are a lot, and there's just a lot. This film is just stuffed with things. It is. It's with the fact incident. that this film has four editors says quite a lot. It says that it took four <coughs> editors and Warren Beatty to wrestle this film. But how down. long is this? Some two and a half hours. No, no, no. It's you're upset at two and a half hours. <laughs> it's two hours and seven minutes with with credits. So just over two hours. And Warren Beatty had wanted to make a Howard Hughes biopic since the mid sixties. And if it hadn't been for The Aviator, the Martin Scorsese film, which I thought was really anonymous, we could have had this film earlier. So The Aviator, I think, was a very, very standard and typical film in terms of being a biopic. It's like, here's Howard Hughes, he did this and this and this and this and this. And he was afflicted with um, OCD and lots of neuroses and he was was, uh, obsessed with flying machines. And that film, I thought, and I think that film was about three hours as well, and just had like a TV movie feel to it. This film doesn't have a TV movie feel to it. This film has a fever dream feel to it. 
it's all like it's, pastels and it's all well, and, it's, the, and, and there are lots of shots of people's faces like illuminated by billboards as they're driving or yeah it's, it's a really <clears throat> it's a lovely LA film it's, it's, it's set in 1958 so it has this slightly rose tinted view the year that the uh, its director got to Hollywood yes I think did Splendour in the Grass that year if not I believe that you might be right uh, let's have a look and see um, and of course this is not this is not based on any previous source material other than Howard Hughes's life but I was wondering um, the grass was 61 so I think the 58 he so he was doing telly from um, 57 to 1960 but yeah but, the, but this was the era you know, it was practically the year that he arrived it's a really good looking Hollywood film just a period that's been recreated there that you know that late fifties, and it's it is quite an idealized. Well, it's it's an idealized version to begin with because this film is many many different beasts in one. It's an odd film indeed. As I said after the film, it's this is it seemed like he had made a film that was basically Howard Hughes. So for the first half of the film, it's very charming and exciting, and it's this you know, wonderful new world of lots of possibilities. And then the more you get to hang out with the film and stay with the film and get to know the film, it becomes much more troubling and disturbed and flighty and exasperating and, remind, and just exhausts you. It reminded me a little bit in that way of Hyde Park on Hudson. Is that the Robin the, Williams the, the film? The FDR film but with, oh, with Bill, yes, Murray, Bill Murray. Yeah, where it's really yeah. light and frothy, then after a certain point it turns into a really dark psychosexual melodrama. With the Laura background Linney. of Will... Yeah, with the background of World War Two, about yeah. as well. Yeah, that was an odd film. That was that was a really that was that was an odd film that you kind of could see everyone was thinking Oscar to begin with, and then by the end you thought, yeah, we're not going to win any Oscars, are we? And, then, and it could have been the same with this because this film is about so many things. This is a film about Warren Beatty because, of course, Warren Beatty and Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was a famous womanizer. He was incredibly attractive. He was incredibly fabulously wealthy he achieved many things in his life there's lots of um, controversy over just how much of a successful businessman he was and how much of it was luck but anyway he did inherit his fortune um but i don't think warren Beatty did but anyway but he was but warren Beatty is that you know the epitome of like comfortable wasp existence who then becomes like a big movie star and independently wealthy and everything so there are lots of parallels between Warren Beatty and Howard Hughes and you're thinking well this is a guy yes Warren Beatty is now 80 so he would have been in his late 70s when he was making this film and is kind of looking back in this film on on young love and the beginning of, of becoming a star the beginning of setting out on your journey at the end of your journey with Howard Hughes and well there's also really weird this film can also be you said it can be viewed as like an allegory for Howard Hughes but, and as you said also for Warren Beatty because there's a, a scene in this with the Marla Mabry character the Lily Cobbler singing a song about how the rules don't apply and she's singing about how it feels to be old because she's such an old soul and how you need to believe in yourself because you know the rules don't apply to you and she's singing this to Warren Beatty to Howard Hughes and it's almost like this character is giving him as a director as a an artist the pep talk that he needs to make this film. Yeah. It's like, you've been away for 15 years and you feel old and you're over the hill and all these aspirational stuff's only meant to apply to young people. But you can do this, Warren. I mean, Howard. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Howard, Warren, Mr. Beatty Hughes. That's, yes, you can do this. No, that's exactly right. There's, there's a lot about this film that's, that's meta 
including Annette Benning as Marla's mum. Because Annette Benning is, of course, Mrs. Warren Beatty. And she rocks up and she's a devout Christian. I think she's a Methodist and she, she says they're Methodists. And she is very worried about this Howard Hughes character who is always chasing these young girls and has like a terrible reputation and is going to like you know bring destroy her daughter's life and you're thinking is this is that a slightly weird like a lecturer complex thing there well it is because it's his wife playing the mother of this young woman with whom he has this sort of romantic entanglement it is but also with Annette Benning, I thought is this is a lot of this taken from your own fears about him going off and chasing young skirt and stuff when in the early days of you when I'm married to him or when you were engaged to him or something? It's like, there's, how much of this is you know, came from your own worries about you know, marrying the guy who, when I was a kid, was always known as like you know the the world's greatest lover of of the modern age and the guy who would just who could sleep with any woman because he was just so devilishly handsome and and attractive and brilliant and. Uh, and alluring, and then Annette Benning marrying a person with that reputation, the yeah, worries and doubts she must have had is like, is that seems to inform some of her character there? Although, of course, yeah, they've been married for I think for over 20 years now, so um, so that seems to work out yeah, pretty well for them. But it's so there's a lot in this film that's like it seems to be like a rumination on on a life lived and not just Howard Hughes. Um, there's also that great quote at the beginning never check an interesting fact which is um, attributed to Howard Hughes although there's even debate around whether he said that so there's lots of this is the rules don't apply well, you, need to take, you need to take the lesson of the quote yes that's right it's, uh, the rules don't apply also the fact shouldn't get in the way seems to be another because it's not a film that's that ever going to make money well that's the really interesting thing isn't it there are, there are so many interesting things about this film and that's the thing is this film is good and it kept my attention and then but it was good because I was thinking my god I am watching a person who's given unfettered freedom to make whatever it's he got like 20 to. producers on board including like Arna Milchin and things people like that and yeah. do you remember at the end of the film because we watched it and there was a Q&A with Warren Beatty and I put some excerpts from that Q&A onto this podcast because he was still in character when he was interviewed he was interviewed by Edith Bowman and she was not a strong presence. She was not a strong presence, and he needed a stronger interviewer to to basically to rein him in because he was just he was just in character as Howard Hughes. He was rambling and he was incoherent. He couldn't articulate why he was good at his job, and he's good at his job. He's a good filmmaker, and he knows he's good at his job. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does know he's good at his job. Yeah, you were saying earlier that there are directorial flourishes in this film that are really, really. Impressive. I mean, can I talk? Should I talk about that one? Is that a, is it a spoiler? Well, I really like that bit, and I thought I was really surprised when I saw it. So maybe it is a spoiler because it's a really nice reveal, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's a reverse shot that where something's been locked off for a while, and all of a sudden the camera sort of tracks dizzyingly backwards, and it, and it's startling. It is genuinely quite surprising, and the film, yeah, is it is very old school. It seems to have matte paintings in it. I'm sure there'd be a CGI matte paintings, but there are certain scenes that seem to be to look like or seem to consciously try to replicate an old school matte painting. So you're hearkening back to a different era here, but of course you're also and actually maybe you're hearkening back to a different era in that you have a romantic entanglement with 
you know, Lily Collins, who plays a 20-year-old, and that was, I thought, well, I don't know, a bit misjudged in the way that was handled, um, a bit queasy, but anyway. But there's lots of things I thought that were so interesting about this film. But yeah, you're right, this is a film that was not going to make money, but at the end of the film, sorry, to yeah, go back to what I was talking about, at the end of the film, he clearly had said, I want the entire film to play, including all, all the credits before I go in to, to give the Q&A. And there were about nine or ten company logos that came up at the end of the film, weren't they? Just one after another, another after, after another, another, after another. And it's like, you chased money to make this film. Did anyone expect to have a return on their investment in this film? I don't know. Is it partly that you can just say that we funded, we put, we, you know, we, we put in an amount of money to the new Warren Beatty film and... It's a tax write-off and... Yeah. It's his first film for 15 years, so there will be some interest in it and... That's what we'll do. Um, I mean, I'm glad he's, if he's going to go out, and he anybody said he said do more, but I don't know if he will. I'm glad he's going out on this rather than Town and Country. Oh God, yeah, because that was I mean that was an awful film, and that's the thing about Warren Beatty is that he's a guy who has made some I think some of the great movies. Bonnie and Clyde was is you know a classic movie. The Parallax View is is a classic McCain movie. Mrs. Miller. McCain Mrs. Miller is like yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic film as well. All these are fantastic movies and Reds, which are you know, I just haven't seen Reds, and I should have seen Reds by now, but I haven't seen it. But I hear it's very good. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought you liked it. And Bullworth, I thought was like a great movie as well. And Dick Tracy, I thought was really good. And so for him to go out on Town and Country, a film that was one of the most expensive films ever made, only because they he kept having to reshoot. You know? Yeah, they kept having to reshoot, and they and they kept having to. He wasn't happy with the script, and he wouldn't do the script as it was. So therefore, they kept having to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So they, so they couldn't shoot because they didn't have a script. But while they and they actually shut down production to rewrite the script, but everyone in in their contracts was still getting paid, which meant that for a few months, at least that film uh, was paying people and and they weren't working. So that sounds like the best film to work on because you just uh, a home game like a check, yeah. And the director who was. Peter, I can't think of his name now. I think it's like a British director. Peter Chelsum, who did Funny Bones, and he made the John Cusack film Serendipity while this film was on oh, on hiatus. Yeah, so he made Serendipity while Town and Country was being retooled. So you kind of thinking, did he get paid for his son also for Town and Country? Also, um, was also this was, was this Diane Keaton's first role in her now go to sort of? No, Com- no. Middle, comfortable middle class slightly quirky mum I think that would have been the first wives club or something like that wouldn't it was that before that it was uh, that first first wives club was um, yeah it was 96 I think yes there we are because yeah, she's definitely sounded, father, father of the bride, of the bride. Of the bride. so yeah, she goes yeah. back a decade before that yeah indeed but that oh god town and country was awful um, and yeah and serendipity wasn't very good and Bugsy yeah Bugsy was great as well that's the thing and also Warren Beat is always one of those people that you forget what a good actor he is. And also what... He's just watchable. He's just got... And he also has great comic timing as well. He is a funny... He can be really funny. And it's interesting that he... Well, I suppose he did Dick Tracy, which was you know, a bit of a franchise film, but it wasn't successful enough to be a franchise. But just... but he never did... Because I, because I think he was offered a role in Star Wars. I think he was offered Han Solo, which is really interesting in terms of old Aaron Reich. It's the new Han Solo... But I just think he clearly sees Old and Aaron Reich as the younger version of him. I think so, because yeah. because they've got that sort of 
slightly underplayed intensity about them, but with the, with the boyish quality. Yeah, and yeah. and you know, they don't really say they're not they're not voluble. And yeah, that's right. And they have um, a lightness and like a nice a nice lightness of touch, but also a darkness with them as well. I mean, I, mean, I would say the only thing there is that Warren Beatty is he's a tall bloke. He's six foot two or three, I think, and he's very broad shoulders. So. Whereas old and Ehrenreich is he's yeah, he's quite slight, isn't he? Is uh, but but looking at um Warren Beatty's filmography, there are some gaps on there. There are big gaps. There are like three. There are consistently like three to six year gaps. Only in the eighties, it's like he worked pretty consistently during the sixties and seventies. Um, that was kind of when he was still starting out. Well, I don't know if you think like yeah, sixties and seventies. Yeah, so by the time he got to the eighties, they've been doing it for twenty years. Um, and then in the eighties, he did Reds. And you can see that he wanted to break after Reds, and then he did Ishtar. We kind of think that Ishtar was one of the biggest flops of all time, and um, came off the back of that and did Dick Tracy. Yeah, and it was only three years after Dick Tracy, um, Ishtar, that he did that. And you kind of think, I remember it being longer that yeah he hadn't made a film because he was so stung by the by the failure of Ishtar. And is Ishtar is it supposed to be yeah Morocco, isn't it? And it's. Ishtar was was like a road to movie, wasn't it? It was like yeah, the road to Rio, or like yeah, the road to Morocco, or something. Um, the old Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies, but done with a new for a new era, and it was cack. And the the joke that summer, I think, was that Ishtar was Moroccan for Howard the Duck because they, <laughs> because they both got released in the same the same summer and were both huge huge flops. Um, the, yeah, how, it's how the fuck. How how the fuck? <laughs> and then Dick, um, Dick Tracy and Bugsy, so two gangster films back to back, and then Love Affair, which was uh, that was well, that was his love letter to Annette Benning. That was, and that was not you know, very good. And then Bullworth, which I thought was such a great film, where he plays um, a Democratic senator who is completely sold out all of his principles and goes a bit mad after putting a hit out on himself. And kind of becomes a rapper and a, a truth, a truth spitting rapper. It's kind well, of like the comedy network. It is the comedy network, yeah. And it's also he is the, he's, the good version of Trump in a way. Although one well, no, because Trump lies constantly, and he doesn't. He is the, he is the good version of, of Trump in that he constantly tells the truth and he does it in a really a really brazen and a reckless way. And Bullworth is one of those films that... There's a very good book called The Gross, which talks about the films that came out in 98, and it kind of sees it as a bit of a tipping point year. Um, and Bullworth keeps being mentioned as a film that no one quite knows how it was getting made, and no one at Fox could find out who would greenlit Bullworth. It was just the Warren Beatty film that Warren Beatty was, was now making, but no one could quite work out why he was making it or who had said he could make it and it's like well that's really that seems to sum up that he kind of film. fell between producers I think there was lots of things like somebody there. left and had greenlit it and it was and it was already too far ahead for anybody to really pull the plug on it well no because they were looking into that but no one could really find out if that was the case or not because it didn't seem to be like a paper trail for this film it was just a film that suddenly was just happening and yeah um, do you think that's Warren Beatty do you think that was Warren Beatty sort of being like well I'm not going to run for office 
fuck it, I'll just do it in, on film. He really is. I think it's one of those things where he realised that he hasn't got the... Um, well, that, you know, not that it's uh, any hindrance to Trump, but he, he hasn't got the discipline for public service or um, and for political life. So therefore, he will put all of his current political thinking into this film because he has got the discipline to do that for a few months. Because, of course, he's been very politically active his, his whole life and is, and is a liberal. So, so yeah... And Howard Hughes, of course, was well, was anti-communist, wasn't he? And he was um, he was quite quite a right winger, but he was also rather paranoid and drug addicted and crippled by OCD. So, anyway, but the other thing that um, yeah, 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 so like you know, swings and roundabouts, swings and roundabouts. The other thing about rules don't apply though is that it seems to. It's like a biblical epic. It's a, a film in which religion plays a massive part in this film. It's uh, because both Marla and Frank uh, come from puritanical religious backgrounds. They are both literally God-fearing and believe in sin and, and the concept of corrupting the soul. And and Frank is actually oh. en- engaged to a to a very religious woman as well. So. And the idea of, uh, of uh, how it uses the devil. I mean, the, the, the idea of uh, two lovers in you know in paradise in a situation that can't last goes back to Spender in the Grass, literally Warren Beatty's breakout role in Hollywood. Well, he goes back to Adam and Eve. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's like, I, mean, I mean, in terms of... Yeah. <laughs> I know he's old, but he's not that old. <laughs> God, you don't have to foist your religious conviction, convictions on everyone, Rob. It's... I know. You're just, you, and, you and your God-bothering, Rob. You're right, it's... It's the thing that started... It was the genesis of the first mismatched couple <laughs> rom-com and also Warren Beatty's Why first Why has film. no one made Adam and Eve as a, rom- as a rom-com? I know. Weird, isn't it? Um, I literally... I, I can't I believe we, that nobody's made that. We will have to uh, put pen to paper on that. And But then it shifts so that you have... There is a moment of like original sin and fall from grace... And then it shifts over to Howard Hughes's character, who, as you said, is kind of presented as Lucifer from Paradise Lost. He is, he is a fallen angel. He is, and he's, and he's constantly talking about his dad and sort of like wanting to, not let his dad down. But he's also yeah, he's also this kook who's. But he's also he's always flying and trying to touch the heavens and stuff. So it's you're thinking, my God, there's so many weird religious things going on in this film. Steve Coogan in the in the and Steve Coogan is. Uh, is I this, think, uh, this Air Force. Yeah, is it like a DC ten yeah. or something? It's like one of the early commercial planes, and Howard Hughes are flying it. Steve Coogan is, is the captain. Scenes of him, you know, bugging out, <laughs> looking very, very worried as um, as Howard Hughes is going for a joyride in the sky. And yes, Eddie is is wearing um, an RAF uniform, and and yeah, the suggestion is that he's seen combat, and he's still completely freaked out by what's happening to him. Um, after the film had finished and after Warren beat his really rather strange Q&A in which he didn't say very much he just kept circling anecdotes he did yes he did he did this thing where he would say I mean look yeah, I've, I've been so lucky in my career I mean I could tell you stories about Kubrick and Arthur Penn and Schlesinger and Goddard and Fellini and Antonioni and Antonioni I could tell you those then tell them tell the stories Warren you know, as, as Stanley would say and of course you know I mean Stanley Kubrick yeah because he's talking about, yeah, yeah and as, as Stanley would say sorry you guys know I'm talking about Kubrick when I say Stanley yeah it's like no <laughs> because you could be talking about Stanley Kramer or you could be talking about anyone we don't your life is why we're here to listen to you you need to not assume knowledge he was and it was yeah but I said like yeah it's not every night that 
you get to see Warren Beatty, and you were the one that found out he was doing the Q and A. So thank you for that because it was a, it was a memorable evening, both in terms of the film and in terms of the Q and A. But we did talk about the film afterwards in quite some depth because it is fascinating, isn't it? It is a fascinating film. It's not perfect. It's not successful in all ways, and it's very flawed. But Christ, does it try to go for glory sometimes? And yeah. It's a bizarre film that has got so much going on on a surface level, and yet there are there are certain undercurrents in it that you you never quite know whether or not they're intentional. Mm, that's right. It's it is yeah. Like what are you trying to go for here? What is your well? You seem to be going for everything in this film. This seems like a because he said yeah, this is not his final film, but it seemed like a final statement on things. If I don't make another film, I've cr- I've crammed everything I want to say about fame and yeah, male-female relationships and the male ego and male and, fragility. And the very casual way in which you try to, you know, when, when you kind of, when, you know, people have made out, like, I've been trying to make this film for years and obviously, you know, he kept on trying to brush off the Howard Hughes angle as just being, him being an obstacle and a device by which to tell the story of these two young lovers. Yeah, that's right, when he said, yeah, you need an obstacle in all these films and it's like, no, this is, you would, you would not make a film about these characters and that'd just be the film. It was the Howard Hughes story that attracted you. It was really successful in the way that it just showed what your life was like to be an eccentric billionaire. So therefore, it's a very nocturnal world where all the people around him, including you know, Matthew Broderick as his faithful lackey, and Alec Baldwin as like a CEO of one of his companies, and, and Martin Sheen as like his long-suffering kind of lawyer or well, legal counsel or something, and. Candice Bergen is like a PA and everybody's working to his schedule and if he wants to do something if he wants a bowl of peanut what was it banana oh um, yeah banana nut ice cream if he wants that and only that and, either, and they have to buy it all out then they will buy it and they will transport it across country to uh, to Vegas so that he can have ice cream in in blazing heat and but also um, the way that he leads a really nocturnal life but everyone is kind of saying yes well, three yeah, and a half, three, the meeting at half past three in the morning is fine. Yes, yeah, so you have your three fifteen a.m. meeting with Mister Hughes, and you always work to his clock, and he always seems. We never seem to really sleep. He's always up, and he's always having some kind of meeting, but he's also really reclusive, and he won't meet people. And but then you can just be walking down the street with him and come to a meal that's been you know, laid out for you, and it's just there on a table waiting for you. And I thought, well, that's. These are really nice touches because they suggest that he's asked for something. Power, yeah. And yeah, and because of his power and his wealth, a lot of people have just made that happen and it's just there for him and he just expects that to happen because of all the money he's got. And I thought, well, that's. These are really quite subtle but really quite imaginative ways to show how a person can ask for something on a whim and if you are successful enough, you will just get whatever you want. Again, it's, it's you know, the movie star thing. And. And the doubles he has as well. He's got these rather rubbish doubles who are always appearing together, so completely negates the fact that they're his double. <laughs> it's just these things. There was these little moments like that throughout the whole film, and it's like, well, in a time when we are getting lots and lots of films that are either franchises or reboots or sequels, the fact that one I'm of... this exists. Yeah, indeed, one of the major players of Hollywood and one of the great artists of Hollywood has made a film that is just so different and it is completely balmy but it is also really quite memorable and yeah I'm not interested I don't know if, if I'll ever watch it again though I watched Bullworth again and Bonnie and Clyde and the Parallax View and 
Um, what's the other it's one? Not a we gave Mrs. Miller. I watched all those. It's a again. curiosity, not a classic. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know if it would hold up to a repeat viewing, but my memories of experiencing it for the first time are quite warm because I do not know what he's going to do next in this mad, mad film. But yes. Shall we finish off by going from old Naren Reich, who is the new Han Solo, talking about the new Star Wars film? You mean The Empire Strikes Back? I mean The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, the old Star Wars film. And we're back. So, we just watched the Star Wars trailer again. I have to admit, that was only the second time that I'd watched it. Same which... here. Yeah, oh, really? I sort of watched it the first time and just thought, yeah, I, I get what that is. I um, Again, it's pretty reductive. It is very... The last, sorry, um, the Empire Strikes Back. It is. Do you remember? Because um, you, that was in your first year at Sky when that first trailer came out, wasn't it? Was it October? Yeah, November everybody time? watched. Everybody watched it on my computer. That's right. Yeah. So we all got around your computer at work when it was released on a Friday afternoon, our time, UK time, and it was like the new Star Wars trailers here, the new Star Wars trailers here, and you put it on, and we all gathered around and watched it. And I think we had to go to a meeting at that point, but. It was with my boss, and she kind of said, "Oh, it's fine. We'll watch the new Star Wars trailer." <laughs> so, and there was such an excitement, and then we watched the new Star Wars trailer, and for the Force Awakens, and it was that first trailer and with the opening shot, with the opening shot of um, Finn. Yeah, that's right. John Boyega as he pops up into frame, and it had the the X-wing doing the attack run over the lake, and it was like all the stuff that you knew from Star Wars, but done with with latest effects and a director who seemed to know exactly how to make this stuff look really great again. And it was so exciting that do you remember that we went and we watched it immediately again afterwards. Yes. And it was like, because everyone wanted to watch it again. And that's the thing, this new trailer, there's not the same hype surrounding it because it's kind of fallen into the trap of doing what people were worried. The first film, you know, I, I love, but you kind of gave a pass to for 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 doing essentially a new hope again because it, as you as you said it was a rescue mission it was kind of redeeming the franchise after the prequels this new film you're hoping to sort of break the mold and do something slightly and and admittedly you know we, we probably should have seen it at the end of the force awakens because it's her being it opens with ray you know having presumably just had some sort of force vision being trained on octo yep. by luke you know he's taken the yoda role and there's, you know, as we're going to onto a set, there's a much more, um, there's a good degree of much more ambivalence and ambiguity there, even then, even then, you know, there was when there was with Yoda, but it does feel very familiar. Familiar, that's right. And I mean, in a way that, you know, all this stuff is, you know, it all goes back, to, all goes back to uh, Joseph Campbell and it the does. whole myth art, and there's only so far perhaps that you can deviate from it with that. With, uh, but you can't keep doing the same Star Wars films over and over again and that's the thing is that yeah, Force Awakens was a new hope but with enough new stuff in there to I think yeah, make it a really just a great movie and I've seen that film a number of times now and I just love watching The Force Awakens but with this film and look we've seen two minutes of footage so therefore we can't judge but can we? <laughs> because we are in the best sense of the word, geeks, which means that therefore we have seen a lot of this stuff, we know a lot of the beats of these movies, and we can watch a trailer, I think, and kind of get the vibe of what the film is, and it's like, I know there isn't any plot given away in this, but it does, if it is the, if it is the biggest double bluff in history, and it's like, we want them to think this looks like The Empire Strikes Back, so that then when they see the film, they're really surprised that the opening with Ray being trained on Akuto is only the first 
10 to 15 minutes to film them into a whole and different story. And that'd be story. great, because Luke has a whole ideology. I mean, you know, he says at the end of the trailer, the Jedi must end, and that's been you know, interpreted in a lot of different ways in terms of the, the forces assume to be a binary thing between the light and the dark. What if Luke's a, a grey Jedi? If he somehow believes that the, the, the delineation between the two isn't all that, you know, that you need to be you to open to both. both, because otherwise you'll always be, you know, there'll always be a conflict, there'll always be a war. So, which could mean that the final one is called, or the episode nine is called The Balance of the Force, which yeah. has always seemed to be in the running to be a Star Wars title at some point. I think that The Phantom Menace was you know, originally mooted, it was going to be called The Balance of the Force. That's why, you know, that's arguably why Kylo Ren is so tormented. Because he, because he does feel that you know the the, the call, the, he, you know, as a Jedi, he always felt the call to darkness. And now as the Sith, he feels the call to light. Even having presumably, you know, even having murdered Han Solo, spoiler. <laughs> um, and you know, everybody sort of makes an appearance. They have got Poe Dameron and his inability to, you know, spend very long around ships without having them blown up. <laughs> That's right. And X wings, yeah, X wings tremble when they're around Poe Dameron. <laughs> and um, and he doesn't have Kelly Tran, who's the new. Sort of a female um, oh, okay. colleague, a company, you know, partner to Finn, whom we see, you know, very briefly in um, on the sort of medical healing bays. Uh, what are they called? Um, uh, back to tanks. Oh, you know this better than I do. Well, that's I, I actually think there's some actual proper medical science behind them. I think I, I watched a um, like you know how that's that's actually how people are going to be healed years from now. So science of Star Wars. Yeah, type yeah and um, I, I watched a, I watched a, um, a TED talk on it. I think it was called Back to the Future. <laughs> how much of what you just said is true? <laughs> uh, they are called Back to Tanks. That that much is true. That, that much is true. Everything else was set up for the pun. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's how fake news starts. <laughs> so yeah, Trump got elected because somebody was really determined to land a pun. <laughs> that's right, and it was really great, and I'm very proud of it. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was it was very great. <laughs> um, but this is this is the thing with this film, and I will see it, and I will hopefully oh, of love it. We will. Of course, we're going to see it. Of course, we're going to see it more than once um, at the cinema, and. Hopefully it will be a... Ah, you thought we were going to do Empire and we wanted you to think that because actually we're doing something very different and we're going off in like a completely different direction. But there is an element of this trailer that's like Star Wars fatigue is beginning to threaten to set in and it's like, it, wouldn't it be weird if we get bored by really good, um, well-executed Star Wars films after having three shit Star Wars films with those prequels so nine years oh wow what was it going to um, 99 to 2006 so seven years of Hurt that we then just get a really good one or like a yeah a decent one every year which means it's kind of well, well there's just the magic has gone and, and the thrill has gone from this and that's the thing that's one of the reasons I didn't love Rogue One it's because I didn't feel the magic and oh I know and I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I know that you feel I felt like it was a man on a mission movie set within the Star Wars universe with that with insufficient character development to justify, um, but I yeah that's the thing I, I I've completely felt the the magic with the Force Awakens, mm. and it felt you know I think the Force Awakens is better than Rogue One yeah yeah I, I think I think the Force Awakens is is, is actually is great um, really sort of lands everything it had to land unlike Poe Dameron and, yeah too uh, <laughs> once again singularly you know despite apparently being the best pilot in the resistance just completely trashes anything that he gets into but with this one i thought a few things so it's like well we have 
Kylo Ren is there again, and with his repositioned facial scar. Does it? Have yeah, previously it came across, went across, right straight across like the bridge of his nose. Oh right, and now it's running down like the oh, cheek. Wow. Mm. Well, he probably had some surgery. Well, the best thing is that he could have had some surgery on his face, and this could be a fresh scar. Who knows? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, but. There's that scene of the white speeders that are skimming across a desert surface. Like salt, like salt flats. That's right, yeah. And that... Red arrows-ish with the... Well, it is a bit, but also just just the design of those vehicles kind of seemed a bit prequel to me. And I know that we're going to have to have some new, some new spaceships in this at some point because they want to sell some new toys. But... I don't know, that just seemed a bit prequel. I know that that's just not fair and it's just me being worried that we're going to go back to the prequel. Which I don't is, think anything, is anything new just going to be described as a bit prequel? A bit prequel, that's right, yeah. So what do you <coughs> want? You don't want the Empire Strikes Back, but you don't want anything new because that would be a bit prequel. What do you fucking want? But I want, I want something that I've never seen before and yet is utterly... Utterly comforting and familiar. <laughs> is that too much to ask? And then, so I was really happy in, in the shot afterwards that you get Poe and BB-8 running along and, and there's an X-Wing and then it blows up and it's like, okay, that's fine bit. And you get the um, armada of, of rebel spaceships and all the TIE fighters flying and towards them. And that, and again, it all looks good, but it seems after the final battle in Rogue One, it will be interesting to see what they can do to top that because that was absolutely spectacular. Mm. And it also says something that on YouTube, the uh, the advert before the trailer was another trailer for War of the Planet of the Apes, and I was a bit more excited by that. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't pre- I hadn't previously been excited by Planet of the Apes, War of the, War of the Planet of the Apes. I thought it was a little bit too much like the previous one, like they just swapped in Woody Harrelson and hoped nobody would notice. Yeah, but this one actually it did actually go quite a long way to establishing some some stakes, and As, it does seem to do different things in in that film. There do seem to be different things going on within it, so you do get the gorillas or the. Um, Apes. Do you at mean some point. gorillas or gorillas? Well, the As gorillas the, who the, are the, the gorilla gorillas. Yeah, the, indeed, the gorilla gorillas, <laughs> who seem to be fighting with the humans at one point, and then you get that really good shot of one of them clearly watching his ape comrades fall under all the machine gun fire, and you think, well, I, this seems to have real character to it. And look, it's yeah, it's a new Star Wars film, and we have to give it. We have to give it at least another trailer before we completely write but it off. about stakes, this is presumably Carrie, uh, Carrie Fisher's last appearance in the role as Princess Leia. Well, they confirmed, yeah, that she won't be in episode nine. So, so she this has is to, it. She has to die. Well, interesting, yeah, because of what we were talking about with Paul Walker and... But you can't sideline her. That's right, yeah, you can't sideline her. It's like she, she's her not son has kind of gone care. to the dark side. And her character is not someone who would be sidelined because of, of that, and also because she's she is um, a princess warrior. So, what's going to happen there? That's I know that, and it's such. I mean, it's just a real tragedy, isn't it? It's like more so than her not being able to be in in the new Star Wars film. But it is, yeah. How are they going to deal with the death of the unplanned death of one of the major characters in this in this universe? We will find out, of course. But yeah, interesting. It's one of the questions I wish I'd ever named to ask. I mean, the Warren Beatty Q&A we went to wasn't really a Q&A, it was a conversation with, and they didn't ask him any probing questions. They're all very broad. They, nobody, it wasn't even, the Oscars didn't even come up, which was my big fear about Q&A, was that it would dwell completely on... Well, no one actually asked a question. It yeah. was, um, oh, Edith Bowman asked all the questions, and I think that she probably gauged that anything that he would 
that he would be asked would just be met with one of his rambling and incoherent answers. So, yeah, no one's going to say anything about the Oscars. But, but, um, um, but I, I really want yeah, to ask him about um, Shampoo, mm. that, which was um, sort of Carrie Fisher's first big role. Yeah. We kind of hoping that Edith Bowman would have asked that, but anyway, she didn't. So, yeah, so that's, well, that's Star Wars. And uh, so we'll see about that. And what's up next? Yeah, I was going to say, what is that next? Is it Alien Covenant? It might well be Alien Covenant. Which is the 11th of May, isn't it? Because you're on holiday now, aren't you? You're going to I'm off to Prague. Prague. Which is very nice indeed. Mm. Yeah, it should be good. Cool, so the next one will be Alien Covenant. I can see into the future like Ben Affleck in Paycheck. <laughs> or, and, or Nicolas Cage in that one that Nicolas Cage did. Oh, um, next. Next. Which did seem like his approach to making films at that point. Next. Next. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, rubbish, rubbish film Next is. Next has an amazing ending. I won't spoil, but watch Next just for the ending where you think, how the fuck did that get past any rewrites or studio green lights or who gives money to that ending? It's rubbish. Anyway. It's all the dream. Seeing into the future. It is that we are kicking Alien so hard for being shit because, let's face it, Prometheus sucked ass and Alien... Well, the thing about Alien we, we Covenant is that it looks like a slasher film and everyone said that Alien was like a really classy haunted house or slasher movie. It was, it was it Halloween like in space. done that possibly just taken away the class. Yeah, it does, not it? it? Because, yeah, Alien is Halloween in space. But it was done with a real class and a real elegance and actually some wit and intelligence as well and this has got and even even the trailer's got a fucking shower scene in it and it's like oh bugger off this is a, a sorority girl's alien this gonna is. give it such a kicking that chest is going to find somewhere else to cut out yes I'm going to kick you up the ass so hard that my foot will be coming out of your mouth rather than your little mouth out of your mouth so oh. there <laughs> there you go that didn't work but anyway <laughs> Ridley's going to have the last laugh because we're going to go and see this. I think at the IMAX even. Oh dear. So we'll see. Anyway, um, yes, Alien Covenant will be the next time we talk to you. And that will be interesting to see what we make of that. Until then, thank you, Rob. And thank you, Rob. And thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. And you may now turn your engines off. Waste of your bloody petrol. At the start, when, um, when Alden and Lily get in the car with, with Annette as well, with, with her mum. And am I right in thinking that quite a lot of that was improvised in the back seat of the car with the three of them? Well, it was written. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I always, I do more than one take. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and then I always encourage improvisation. And at a certain point you forget what's improvised and what's written because I think what is necessary is are you getting um, a, a good answer to that question is which is often the best answer which is I don't know <laughs> uh, uh, Annette is I guess I have to say my favorite actress you know I think and she's a lot of people in the show yeah and uh we were talking earlier about this picture she made called the 20th Century Woman. Anyone see it? So good, isn't it? It's wonderful. She's so, she's so. Is she easy to direct? <laughs> <laughs>
You mean around? <laughs> uh, not around the house. No. <laughs> no, I do as I'm told. Um, uh, she, yeah, she's she's easy to direct. Um, I I feel she should direct, and uh, I think that we're at we're seeing a real breakthrough now on uh, female directors. And, um, it's about time. Huh? It's about time. Yes, it's about time. And um, what would I say to try to be impressive? Um, I think it's the biggest thing that's happening in the world right now is the uh, liberation of and the empowerment of the female. Next question. 